Hey everybody, welcome back to the Noggin Notes podcast. My name is Jake Wiskirchen. I'm your host, and as always, this show is sponsored by Zephyr Wellness, the company I co-own in northern Nevada, and you can check out more at zephyrwellness.org. We're also sponsored by Audible, and we're blessed enough to be offering our listeners a free 30-day trial if you go to audibletrial.com slash notes and just sign up. You get a free audiobook and you get to select something from their unmatched selection of content. It uh, not just audiobooks, but it spans entertainment and news and all sorts of things. Go to audibletrial.com slash notes. You get something, we get something, everybody benefits. And of course, Audible is an Amazon company, and so their reach is far and wide. And like I said, their selection is uh, completely unmatched. Audibletrial.com slash notes. Support us, support our sponsors. Today's episode is uh, me rambling about a various uh, about various topics that have come to fruition lately uh, in my life in the last week or so, and I think you'll find it enjoyable. I talk a little bit more about the emotional wave as it applies to um, situations, not just uh, episodes that trigger emotion, but uh, in general, how we can apply that concept in, to- in tolerating distress and then teaching others how to do it as well. Uh, and we also talk about uh, suicide awareness because uh, that's it's always something that we should be aware of. And, uh, and be able to help each other and notice red flags and that kind of thing. So if you want to reach us, info at nogginnotes.com, info at zephyrwellness.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Enjoy the episode. Something occurred to me this week while we were conducting some suicide screenings uh, for children in rural Nevada at the schools out there in, in Pershing County, which is kind of in the, in the north central part of the state. And what dawned on me was that on this program, we've never actually covered signs of suicide, Uh, even though we've talked about it a lot with uh, Walk the Talk America, and we've definitely had some interviews on the subject. I've I've realized we failed to instruct the listening audience on how to pay attention to that kind of stuff. So I want to spend some time today, and this isn't all that I want to talk about because it's a little bit of a gloomy topic, but it is educational. And uh, I think for those of us in the mental health field, we are pretty well-trained on uh, dealing with people who may be experiencing suicidal ideation or who are just, you know, vaguely depressed and um, maybe, you know, are con- considering what life would be like, you know, if they weren't here anymore. So that's that's a little bit of suicidality, but it's on the low end of the scale. So I want to walk through some steps that you can uh, apply practically in your life to know whether people around you, and, and particularly children, might be experiencing some suicidal thoughts or ideation. And I want to start with children or, or teens. Now, there there's some factors that might increase the risk that a teen or an adolescent might consider suicide. And um, before I get into this, though, I want to I uh, make a language distinction. So in common parlance, we say committed suicide. Now, in the suicide prevention community, uh, the, the the word committed is kind of seen as a as a as an epithet. It's a bad word and uh, and it's derogatory because they the the folks who are really really involved in the suicide prevention efforts they they make the the association with committed uh, to crime. So uh, they we want to make sure that we're not talking about suicide as though it's a, a criminal activity or that we're branding people as as bad or or criminal in nature simply because they're 
you know, considering suicide or people have died by suicide. They're not, they're not criminals. So that's, a, that's some sort of bailiwick that, that certain people adhere to. I, I'm not one to embrace that because I think commitment has a variety of definitions, uh, in, including, you know, committing oneself to doing something, which, you know, if you're, you're going to kill yourself, you, that's a heck of a commitment. So, uh, I'm not, I'm not a big, uh, you know, stickler on that particular piece of language, but just know that some people are, and they would prefer the phrase died by suicide rather than committed suicide. So as I go in and out of this, I'm going to, I'm going to use what my brain thinks is most appropriate. So if we're talking about uh, teens or adolescents or even youth, you know, say under the age of, um, you know, 12 or 13, some of the risk factors are uh, obviously depression. If, if you're facing a depressed state, um, life doesn't seem quite as bright anymore. And, and other mental disorders can come alongside that too. And, and chiefly suicide. And I want to hover here for a second because suicide is often, um, not frequently attributed to anxiety. And, um, and I think, I think if we're thinking of terms of, uh, you know, what, what brings people to take their own lives, anxiety is, it's, it's a mercurial subject or a mercurial presentation insofar as you can be worried quite a lot about a lot of things to the point that you worry so much that you quit. And then your worry actually ends up masquerading as depression because you've kind of caught that, you know, screw it, I don't care attitude, which in a, in a, in an untrained setting, you know, or, or at least a, a low trained setting might look, walk, talk, act like depression, but really, uh, it takes a little bit more skill to ask some questions about, you know, are you concerned? Are you a perfectionist? Are your grades not where they need to be? Um, are you concerned about not getting into college? And if the answers to those questions are yes, you, you start looking a little bit more for anxiety, uh, which is why sometimes when kids present with depression and they're prescribed an antidepressant medication, it actually makes things worse because they're not actually experiencing depression. They're experiencing anxiety that has gotten so overwhelming that they've kind of checked out and their brain is still working on, on overdrive worrying and being concerned about the things about which they're anxious. So we want to be very, very careful when we interview teens and children about their quote-unquote depressive symptoms that we're not overlooking the anxiety that may be giving rise to the depression, um, I guess, uh, facade and make sure that it's not something else beneath the surface like anxiety. So uh, obviously mental disorders, uh, depression, anxiety, substance abuse for sure can all contribute to increased risk factors for suicide. Um, I think this may be obvious to people like me, but maybe it's not so obvious to the listening community, but uh, the quote-unquote feelings of hopelessness and worthlessness. So this can often accompany bullying activities too. So if your kid is, um, you know, making statements like, oh, I just don't matter anymore, or things just, things just aren't worth it, or I don't really care, um, sometimes that might just be, you know, general teen angst, and that's fine. But we want to ask questions like, hey, is anybody picking on you, on you at school? Um, you know, what, what is it about you that, that makes you feel this way? What, why are you believing that you don't matter? You know, start asking probing questions about that, because if they're, uh, and, and if you listen to this program long enough, you know that hopelessness and worthlessness are not quote unquote feelings, they're beliefs or ideas, but uh, broader society talks like that, like it's a, like it's a feeling of hopelessness, right? But it's not, it's a belief. But if they believe that they're worthless or they're, or they're, uh, they, they don't have any hope or, or they, they're not dreaming, 
um, or they're just kind of going through the ro- routine and going through the motions. We want to pay attention to that because there there might be some low level suicidality b- beneath that. Uh, some other risk factors: uh, family history of suicide, and that's not because it's genetic. This and I, I like clap my hands if I'm in a room to help people pay attention. So I'll like <laughs> clap your hand, clap my hands to to bring your attention back to this. It's not in your genes. Suicidality is not genetic, but family history of suicide, what it does is it, is it almost gives a permission, right? So if uh, Uncle Joe has committed suicide and, and uh, we have this third cousin who also died by suicide, um, then maybe it, it looks like a little bit better option for me. Similarly, divorce uh, that runs in families that you know have had breakups, divorce is now suddenly on the table as an option for you know checking out of a relationship whereas families who have long standing histories of of you know years long decades long marriages divorce just tends not to be an option or it's or it's lesser of an option so we want to pay attention to family history of suicide and then also uh, previous uh, suicide attempts too so if if somebody's attempted or talked like it then they're more likely to 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 execute it fully and go down that path Physical illness, uh, if, if there's a chronic physical illness for sure, uh, that can lead people to, to you know, wanting self-death. We want to pay attention to access to lethal weapons in the home or lethal means. So uh, any sort of um, medication that can, you know, can, if taken in too high of a volume, cause death uh, more, more quickly than another medication. I'm not talking about, you know, lock up your Tylenol, though Tylenol can certainly be, you know, problematic. Uh, it's not nearly as lethal as, say, an overdose of a benzodiazepine or or some of those some of the other um, prescribed medications. You know, heart medications, for sure, uh, can can certainly cause death quicker than some others. And then, obviously, weapons. So, um, if you have firearms in the home, we want to be mindful of where they're they're stored and where they're locked. Hopefully, they're locked. Uh, as a as a firearms advocate myself, uh, I want to make sure that my my firearms are locked and away from children, so that there's no accidental discharges, or that there's not just simply a temptation of curiosity as well. Um, children uh, will often pick up a gun, and out of curiosity, the first thing they do is look straight down the barrel and pull the trigger. Uh, and if that weapon's loaded, um, dead child. So we want to we want to make sure that our guns are locked and safely tucked away and, and in secure places and, and with you know combinations and passwords that they can't easily stumble upon. And then also knowing somebody with suicidal behavior, such as a family member, a friend, or or and this is a big one, celebrities. And um, celebritydom is is hugely influence influential in children. And there was a show called uh, Thirteen Reasons Why that uh, gained some national attention and I, I believe international attention as well uh, because there was a story of a of a girl who you know uh, killed herself and gave gave all these reasons as to why it was okay and so this this caused a oh well I want to be careful not to say cause because we're not really sure but there seemed to be a correlation of an increase in suicidal teenagers uh, when that show was was released I, th- I believe it was on Netflix or something like that so um, we also want to consider uh, sexual orientation as well. So if there's an unsupportive family uh, or, a, or a hostile school environment or community uh, that's, not, that's not supportive, um, the, the suicide rate for people in the gay community is much, much higher. And, and uh, trans folks, uh, transgender people, 
Uh, I think it's it's like 40% in the trans community. It's it's really it's really bad. So we want to be mindful of that too. If, if a child is struggling with his or her sexual orientation or sexual identity or gender identity, we want to be mindful that 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 is uh, often accompanied by an increased risk for suicidality. So so those are some some risk factors. But but now let's talk warning signs. Okay, so warning signs for for kids and teens. Obviously, if they're talking about it, that's a big deal. Uh, we call that ideation, meaning you have an idea and you're expressing it. So if they're thinking, writing, drawing, talking about it, uh, suicide, death, afterlife, uh, what would life be like if I weren't here? Maybe I, maybe everybody would be a better off if I, without me, you know, phrases like that. Now, I want to I wanna couch that by saying normal exploration of one's own mortality is absolutely natural. Um, as long as there's no plan or um, you know we want to scale these things, and I'll get into that in a minute. But if there's if there's um, if there's no plan and it's just a vague expression or or um, ideation, oftentimes that's just uh, kids being kids. As adults will be adults, and we contemplate things all the time uh, about you know what if something were to happen, and then what would I do about it, right? So we don't want to necessarily pathologize a normal human. Um, exploration of death and um, and dying and the afterlife. We want to sit down and, and educate your, our children about that, which means that we ourselves have to be knowledgeable and we have to be comfortable with the topic. And that talks that uh, leads into an emotional wave. And I'll get into that in a minute because I wanted to talk about the emotional wave um, differently in this podcast. Um, signs. Uh, more signs are dependence on substances, alcohol and drugs. That's that's a huge one. So if if your if your kid's smoking a lot of pot, um, pay attention to that because it's often used to de-anxietize or avoid or escape if they're drinking. Um, stop that. I mean, you got to intervene. There's there's just just no equivocation about this. Uh, kids should not be doing drugs. I don't care how popular they become in the adult world or how much gets legalized for those over the age of 18 or 21, uh, children should not be doing them full stop. Uh, and if they are, be aware that something else is lurking beneath the surface. Um, you know, we can chalk up, you know, high school partying to having fun and exploration and socializing and all that stuff. But if it's chronic, um, and high school partying, by the way, if you're drinking during parties, that's not okay either. Uh, that should just never happen. Uh, it's illegal. It's unhealthy. Uh, it's there's just no good that can come from it. If you want to party, you know, do it sober and and play board games in the living room. Um, but if it's more chronic than just a, a periodic or episodic party, we really want to pay attention to what else is lurking beneath the surface because just like in adults who drink or use drugs in far too great of a capacity, chances are really strong that they're just covering up some psychological distress underneath that could lead to suicide. Uh, trouble focusing or thinking clearly, uh, lack of interest or pleasure in activities that usually were interesting or pleasurable to that person, um, risk-taking behaviors, recklessness, um, bizarre behavior, and um, you know, violence obviously is, is another one. Uh, and then uh, changes in eating or sleeping, uh, changes of mood, and, and all of this should should be compared against baseline, right? So if you got a kid who uh, you've raised, you know, since birth all the way through twelve or thirteen years old, and then all of a sudden there's a there's a sharp departure from what you know is normal. That's what we want to pay attention to, not necessarily that there's these episodic things that pop in and out, or that's you know 
uh, you know, the writing is, is dark or the, the artistic work is dark. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. If it's a departure from normal, we want to pay attention to that and start having a conversation about it. Um, then, you know, what, what do you do? Okay. So this, this leads into the, the, what I alluded to earlier about plan and access to the plan and, and, um, and scaling. So what I do when, when we do these screenings, so there's a, there's a very formulaic process. The kids write down, uh, what, you know, some, some true, you know, yes, no answers to whether or not they've, uh, lost interest or pleasure in the last four weeks and certain activities, if they don't uh, feel good about themselves, uh, if they, um, have openly thought about suicide, you know, we ask a bunch of questions and then based on that questionnaire, uh, they get scaled into uh, three tiers, uh, low, medium, high, and then they get referred in for a, a little higher level conversation with somebody like me, who's a licensed clinician. So I'll sit down and I'll start talking to him a little bit, but at some point the topic of suicide comes up and I say, you know, you think about killing yourself and you don't want to dance around the topic. You don't ever want to say, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Because somebody who's really committed to suicide, they're going to go, no, I'm not thinking about hurting myself because in the back of their mind, they're thinking about dying. So you don't want to mislead with something that's that that slides underneath the intended topic by saying, are, you know, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Because uh, they may not be. They may actually think about completing the act. So we want to directly ask, are you thinking about killing yourself? And if they say, well, yeah, it's crossed my mind sometimes. Now we want to scale it. And the scale that I use for anything that I scale has got to be extreme. So one on the low end of the scale is Life is absolutely perfect. I wouldn't change anything. It's amazing. Uh, zero thinking about death. Ten, and I put on this on this scale. My ten is as soon as we're done talking, you're gonna, you're going to leave this office and walk straight into traffic uh, and try and try to die. Um, so I ask them, where are you on that scale? How extreme is it? And for me, uh, it depends on you know how who I'm talking to and and w- what their context are and what their circumstances are. Because some people are. Um, you know, chronically at a five or a six, and I don't want to. I don't want to be alarmed just because somebody says, "Well, I'm at a six. Well, well, how was yesterday? Well, six. How about tomorrow? Probably still a six. Well, what's this about? Uh, you know, my life's a wreck. My family's you know scattered. Uh, dad's in prison. Mom's on drugs. I'm in foster care. Like I'm always thinking about dying. Okay, fair enough. Um, but if somebody says, "Well, I'm in an eight today. Well, eight's extreme no matter what." Well, uh, what caused you to be an eight? Well, I had a I had a breakup yesterday. Oh, well, normally what what are you? Well, I'm normally about a you know one or a two, really. Okay, now we got to start paying attention to this because it represents a departure from the normal, and we want to we want to get that that kid some help or or you know that adult if it's an adult. But we're talking mostly about teenagers and kids here, although the same concepts apply. So so now I've scaled, and what I've done is I've I've assessed for uh, intent, you know, commitment to dying. Uh, and if they, if they're at an eight, that's, that's pretty good. That means, that means, I mean, not, not good. That's pretty strong is what I meant to say. Uh, that's pretty strong. And it means that, you know, give, uh, given a certain event, uh, they, they may push them all the way up to 10. So the next thing I'm going to ask for is, do you have a plan? Uh, so you're at an eight. Um, that's, that's pretty strong. It means that, you know, if, if the wind blows the right way, you might, you might be pushed into actually following through. Well, what's your plan for doing this? Now, if the person says something like, well, my dad's got a gun, it's never locked up, it's just sitting on the top of the, the cabinet at home, and it's always loaded, or I know where the ammunition is, or I'm, I'm going to use that gun, I'm going to walk into the desert, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end my life. Okay, that's pretty serious, because firearms are the most lethal means of, of suicide that we have. 
Uh, similarly, if you have somebody who's equally articulate about a plan for anything else, poisoning, hanging, suffocation, um, you know, I would, I would have to take that seriously. Um, so if they said gun and that's their, their plan, but then I, I ask the follow-up question, well, what's your access to it? Well, in the previous scenario, the person already told me to have access to it. It's on the top of the cabinet, but they say, well, I'd take a, you know, and I've had this happen before. I had an eight year old tell me I'm going to take, I'm going to take a gun and shoot myself. So, okay. Do you have any guns? No. Do you know anybody who has guns? No. Well, what makes you think that you would get a gun and shoot yourself? I don't know. I just heard about it. It sounded like a good idea because I saw it on TV once. All right. So now all of a sudden I've got a kid with high suicidal ideation, um, an articulated plan, but no access to the plan. Similarly, if somebody in, you know, who's 12 years old in Lovelock said, it, Lovelock, by the way, is in central Nevada. It's all, uh, about 100 miles from Reno. Um, said, you know, I'm going to go jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. Okay, do you have a car? No. Do you know how to drive a car? No. Do you know where the Golden Gate Bridge is? I think it's in San Francisco. Where's San Francisco? Uh, uh, in California. <laughs> how are you going to get there? Well, I don't know. <laughs> well, now all of a sudden, you know, it's it's less likely that they're going to follow through with it. So we can we can use that in terms of ascertaining safety for the for the child, but we still have to deal with the the notion that the the kid wants to die. Now, here's something to keep in the back of your mind while you're talking to somebody who's suicidal. More often than not, and we know this through through interviews from lots and lots of people who have attempted and survived, they don't actually want to die. They want the pain to go away. And whatever pain they're suffering is theirs, it's very real, and they own it. And it's so intense that they think that self-death is the only way out. And and that's significant. So we want to keep that in the back of our minds, and we we want to try you know looking for reasons to keep them alive, right? So um, you know, ask them, well, what got you up this morning? Why aren't you already dead? Um, and don't worry about putting the idea of of suicide in their head. If if it's already there, uh, it's a natural human exploration, uh, personally. So uh, you're not ever going to give quote unquote give somebody an idea about dying uh, because it's already in there. It's anybody who's who comes to me and says, well, I'm a, I'm a full-grown adult and I've never considered suicide before, <laughs> uh, I would call you a liar uh, because we've all had an experience where we wonder what life would be like if we weren't here suddenly. Uh, that, and that's, that's, that's an ideation about suicide. It's, it's very normal. It's very natural. We're all curious about death and the afterlife. And so we don't want to take that away from people and we don't want to invalidate it and we want to, don't want to call them you know, weird or strange or, or um, rude. Uh, we don't want to call them bad or evil. We just we just want to say, yeah, this is a normal part of life, uh, and I want you to stay alive. So, please tell me about your your you know, your, your intense thoughts of death. So, anyway, um, if you're if you have that conversation, you start to get a little out of your depth. That's that's probably time to make a phone call to a crisis line, and uh, the national crisis line in the United States is eight hundred two seven three. 8255. It's 273 TALK is the acronym. T A L K is 8255. So it's 800 273 TALK. And there's also a, um, a suicide, I'm sorry, a crisis text line that you can use. And that number is 741 741. I'd like to move on here to a different topic that I referenced earlier, which is the idea of the emotional wave. So in all this context of uh, suicidal ideation, risks, um, you know, warning signs, that kind of thing, what I realize is that in working with these kids, a lot of them just have very, very low distress tolerance. And that's there's no judgment there. I'm just neutrally assessing that they don't know how to tolerate distress very well. So 
If you go back to December of 2018, when I did a six-part series on emotional functioning on this show, you'll know that I talk about emotional functioning in terms of a wave. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end to every emotional experience, at least neurologically speaking, as it's created by the external environment. So if the fire alarm goes off right now while I'm recording this, uh, my brain will tell me to do something in response to that external stimulus. After the fire alarm is off or I leave the building or I make whatever plans I need to make, uh, my brain will return to logic mode from the limbic emotional state that it was in. There was a beginning, a middle, and an end to that. Now, depending on how much we've trained ourselves, and we can train this formally, we can train it informally, we will get through those emotional waves faster or slower. And for for folks who don't know how to tolerate emotion, what they do is they, they sometimes stick in emotion longer than they should. And sometimes they uh, avoid it. They, they go cognitive and they go very cerebral and they, they stuff it down and they rationalize things away. And in either one of those is really, really bad because what ends up happening is a stacking effect of emotion. So as you walk through life, you're going to be hit by environmental stimuli all the time in addition to your own thoughts that will create emotions in your brain. So if you direct your thoughts to something happy, you will have happy chemicals flowing through your brain. If something Uh, happy occurs to you from the external environment, you will also have happy chemicals flowing through your brain. So let's take an average morning. You wake up and um, maybe you wake up and you have a headache and and that kind of, you know, you you judge that headache as as bad and it puts you in a kind of a crummy mood to start. So uh, if we think about our scale of one to 10, uh, zero being very, very calm and 10 being uh, extremely emotional, uh, whatever that may be, uh, we'll, we'll call it anger for, for our purpose right now. If you wake up uh, at a zero, like we probably should if we're waking up in the morning, then then you're, you're happy, you're calm, right? But if you wake up with a headache, you're already probably at a one, one and a half. And if you judge it as annoying or bad or inconvenient or something else, uh, because it's, it's something you have to deal with, well, now maybe you're at a two or a 2.5. Uh, let's say you get out, you get the headache, you get out of bed and um, you stub your toe. Uh, now you're at a 3.5 because you haven't let go of the headache yet. Uh, you're still dealing with the residue. You're, you're trying to you're trying to wrestle through it, you know. So you you haven't quite crested the wave of the headache down to the other side to to be okay and return to to normal functioning, and something else happens. And then you so you know that would be the toe stubbing. And then you walk forward and you, you're you're jumping up and down and you're dropping f bombs maybe <laughs> if you're me. Uh, and you go into the bathroom and you put you know put toothpaste on your brush and it, and it, uh, and it falls in the sink. And then it's like, that's, that's not a big deal. It's, you can just wash it away, but, but it's annoying. And because you haven't worked through the headache, the toe stubbing, and now you've just missed your brush with the toothpaste. That's yet another thing that nudges you up the scale because you're continuing to carry in the residue of the previous, uh, experiences. So let's say this morning goes on. There's lots of things that happen in the morning, right? Life keeps throwing stimulus at us. Um, maybe you open the the blinds or the drapes and they snag, uh, and that's annoying. And maybe uh, maybe the dog gets underfoot and you trip over it, and that's annoying. And then uh, your your kids aren't quite compliant with putting their clothes on, and that's annoying. And and so before you know it, you're simmering at like a seven or a seven and a half as you're going out the door. You you know you, you burn your toast, you spill the coffee, whatever. If you're like me, you're already anxious. <laughs> I, I just made myself anxious 
going through that routine because I'm imagining in my head, even though I'm sitting in a, in a room that's very calm, there's no stimulus going on, simply inventing that stuff in my head made me ramp up. So I have to calm down. I'm going to take a breath here. Whew. Return to the present moment. Okay, that's what we can do every time we experience this and we notice it in ourselves. We can just whew, calm, let it go, direct our attention to the present moment, grab the car keys, get in the car, put the kids in, back out of the driveway, move on, right? I can leave that stuff behind, but only if I notice it. And what I realized in working with these these suicidal kids in, in the Pershing County schools is that they're not aware of it. So you have to be aware of your distress in order to tolerate it, and then you have to tolerate it in order to practice it again later and know that you can get through whatever you're distressed about. Now picture a kid who maybe is raised in a tumultuous environment. Um, you know, there's always chaos. There's, uh, you know, parents are split, or you know, they're incarcerated, or or whatnot. Uh, maybe bounced around from home to home. Parents move job to job. This might not even be unhealthy stuff. It might just be turbulence for turbulence sake i mean uh, kids growing up in military households are constantly moving around they're constantly having to make new friends they're constantly in a state of of you know fluctuation so learning how to tolerate distress comes from being taught and if parents themselves don't know how to teach it because parents themselves don't know how to tolerate it that message isn't going to get passed down so you're going to have like you know generations of chaos sometimes so I'm here to introduce you to the idea that that emotional wave, that beginning, middle, and end, that the very temporary aspect of things can also apply situationally, not just episodically, meaning episode to episode uh, as the environmental uh, stimuli come at us, but in almost like seasons as well. So we can go from, uh, when I do the exercise, I, uh, I teach emotions, I throw pens at people because it, it stimulates their brain to, to realize that a marker's flying at them, they blink or they flinch. And then I tell them, hey, look, you know, a few seconds passed and you're back to listening to me, right? You're not still stuck in surprise. And they nod and, you know, smile and, and then they toss the marker back. Okay, that's an easy demonstration of an emotional way. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, the marker flew, the marker flew past, the marker landed, uh, they picked it up, they realized what was going on, and, and we were done with it. Now, let's, let's presume that it's not a marker. Let's presume that it's um, a test. Uh, so, so a test can create a lot of emotional distress, but there's a beginning to it when you're told that there's a test coming. There's a middle when you're taking the test. That's at the peak of it, right? You can't control what's going on. I know only as far as you can study well for it. And then there's the end of the wave when the test is complete. Now, depending on whether or not you get a good grade or a bad grade, that can trigger another emotional wave. And if you haven't left behind the test anxiety itself, you won't be able to embrace the you know, maybe it's a bad grade. There's disappointment there. And you get the stacking effect that I talk about. So that's a very long buildup. That could be several weeks from the time you learn about the test to the time you take the test, receive the grade, and move on. Same wave, just longer duration, right? It's not a few seconds anymore. The few seconds would apply to the announcement of the test, um, you know, taking the test itself, you know, that kind of thing. But then we have bigger, longer seasons of, of turbulence. Like right now, my wife and I are, you know, we've got a four and a two-year-old. Uh, sleep is at a premium. Uh, not everybody sleeps through the night. 
and this is a long season. Um, we, you know, we only we, we work a lot. We only get one day a week as as parents uh, to be with our children as a family, and that's Saturdays. Uh, the other days of the week, one or the other of us is watching them while the other works, or we're both working and my parents are watching them. This is a long season of turbulence that that's distressing, and we have to have a perspective enough to say, "Hey, this wave will also crest. We will get through it." And we don't know when that is, which is which is equally distressing because because there's there's uncertainty involved, right? But the same wave applies. So here's what I'm thinking, and this is what I wanted to share with you guys. If we can learn that we can tolerate distress waves, whether they be brief for a few seconds, you know, as the environment stimulates the brain, they're a little bit longer, like maybe preparing for a test or a job change or or just driving to work. That's you know that could be twenty to twenty minutes to two hours long, and there's lots of distress involved there. Uh, but then you get to work, you know, it's it's unloaded again, and then you start the work day, or it's it's many months or even years of of distress. If you can get through one tiny wave, marker being thrown at you, um, fly buzzing around your ear, fire alarm going off, if you can get through one wave and know that the earth won't spin off its axis uh, simply because you were pushed into distress and you had to tolerate it, then you can start to recognize other types of waves. And instead of locking your eyes on the on the immediate distress in front of you, you can lock your eyes on the end of it because all waves end, all of them. Some may be longer than others, some may be bigger than others, but they all end. And if we can have the faith that the waves will end, we don't have to lose our minds in the middle of it and reach for something like suicide to punch out. We can know internally that it's tolerable. We don't have to dive into a bottle and escape our emotional functioning by drowning it in alcohol. We don't have to cover it up with drugs. We don't have to replace it with violence or anger. More importantly, in the tiny little episodes of what happens every day and, and the building up from you know waking up in the morning to, with a headache to getting to the car, we don't have to let that stuff build because those are little microwaves, if you will, in and of themselves. And if we tolerate one, we can tolerate the next, we can tolerate the next, and we can appreciate life moment by moment instead of hanging on to certain things or trying to bury them or push them aside, and then it allows the stacking. I know for me personally in my life, Noticing when I'm in, the, in an, a, a distress wave is absolutely critical to how I interact with other people. I, I can cut people short at work. I cannot tolerate folks super well. I can become terse. I can become edgy. I can yell at my children. Uh, I can snap. And that's all things that I don't want to do. Uh, because I'm treat, I'm, you know, I'm preaching peace and, and compassion and, and understanding and, and tolerance and, and appreciation, right? So I have to recognize in myself when I'm feeling a wave, readjust my eyes to from being in the wave to the end of the wave and just live there. I can anticipate the end of it even while I'm in the middle of it, which then helps me regulate my own emotional functioning. I think I've said about enough as I want to say on this topic. Um, I really hope this helps for you. If you want to reach out, give me some feedback, info at nogginnotes.com, info at zephyrwellness.org. Um, if you stuck with me long enough to the very end there, you, you, you heard me tie it together with the suicidal stuff. Um, but, but I want you to really entertain the idea that all things are temporary and that's not to, you know, 
increase anxiety in people's lives where it's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die someday. Well, yes, we all will die someday. Um, but know that the things in your life are temporary so that you can hold them loosely and deal with them appropriately uh, so that you can enjoy life fully uh, for all its ups and downs, for all its trials and tribulations, for all its anxieties and depressive states and, and all the sad and the happy that come along with it. Because that's truly what living is about. We don't want to avoid it. We want to embrace it fully and know that it will all end, uh, including the great and the terrible. So I hope this does something for you. I hope it helps. As always, share this around. Uh, don't be a stranger. Reach out to us, like I said. And uh, wish you all great mental wellness. Goodbye.